Well, good morning, church family. And uh, happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers out there. Uh, and when I use the, the term mother, I'm thinking broadly here. I'm thinking of those of you mothers that are in the throes of it right now with your children and you're feeling exhausted, um, but just loving the fullness of the house because of those little children. I'm thinking of you grandmothers, and I'm also thinking of you spiritual moms. Uh, scripture certainly teaches that spiritual motherhood is so significant. Uh, motherhood is, is truly um, right at the heart of who God is, the character of God. And we look at the Bible, and we are told that God is our father, but God also has the heart of a mother. I, I see this clearly in Jesus do you remember when he was heading towards the cross and he's lamenting Jerusalem? He's about to preach the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He says of Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. That's what a mother is to us, isn't it? A mother is a gatherer. A mother is the one who pursues when the hens run off <laughs> and wants to bring them back together. And that's what God is like. He is like that in our lives. So we're going to learn more about this God by opening up our Bibles to the book of 1 Kings as we study this epic story of Elijah. So open your Bibles. If you're not familiar with turning to 1 Kings and you have a Bible with you, and I encourage you, bring your Bibles with you to church. It is the Word of God, and it's just good to have that book in your hand, I'm telling you. You can start with the book of Genesis, and you'll make your way through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you come to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Kings. So start at the very beginning and just start flipping and you will make your way to 1 Kings and you're going to be putting your finger in chapter 16 and that's where we pick up with this morning. So as we think about this story of Elijah, let's, let's put it into our contemporary context. Have you felt this way recently? It's not so much that we have changed, and what I mean by we is believers in Jesus Christ. It's not so much that we've changed, but the world around us is changing. And it's changing quite dramatically and quite quickly. Uh, we haven't really changed anything about our belief system. We haven't changed any of those fundamental core beliefs. But the more I look out, and I'm sure the more you look out, you can see the change that's happening all around us. Author Timothy Keller shared this recently in an article. He said, we are entering a new era in which there is not only no social benefit to being a Christian, but an actual social cost. In many places, culture is becoming increasingly hostile toward faith and belief in God. Truth, sin, and the afterlife are disappearing in more and more people. Now, Culture is producing people from whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. Now think about that for just a minute. And realize that there are really two mindsets into which you can approach this change that's happening around us. The first mindset is you can look at it all and just get discouraged. 
okay? And let me just say this as a little aside. It is so easy to get yourself discouraged. If you want to be discouraged today, just go home and spend 30 minutes in the news cycle, and I promise you, you will feel discouraged. But here's the thing, believer. The scriptures tell us not to be discouraged So we're supposed to guard our mind and our heart. We're supposed to protect those by not dwelling upon dark thoughts that diminish hope in our world. Which is the second mindset, isn't it? The second mindset is to hope in God. To believe that God still has a plan and a purpose in this world. That the faithful follower of Christ, that God intends for us to live radical lives. Now here's the thing. If you commit yourselves to living a radical life, it is going to require something of you. And if we learn anything from the book of Elijah, we're going to see that Elijah is living in a world that had changed around him. He was still faithful to God. He was still committed to God's ways. And so in order to walk in this world, he would need courageous obedience, or you could think of it like this, brave faith. You remember our study in Daniel? We looked at his faith and we saw that it was good faith. It was a faith that could exist as the minority in culture. Well, the same way Elijah's faith is brave faith. He leads a life of faith with courage and a conviction. He doesn't diminish the word of God. He doesn't turn away from the word of God. No, in the midst of this culture, just like our culture is changing, he stands firm. And we're going to see that if we would commit to that same level of brave faith that God can work through us just as he did through Elijah. So let's get a little bit of the background before we come to the story itself. Now the story of Elijah in your Bible is situated right at the point, the turning point between 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Now, if you're to understand this book of the Bible, you have to understand that the original author did not write this as a part one and a part two. It's a cohesive story. So the story of Elijah sits right in the middle of this bigger story. Now, the purpose that the author is intending to communicate to us in the book of Kings is he wants us to see the state of Israel under the various leadership styles of different kings who were ruling the nation. It's a, it's a complicated story. It begins with a united kingdom. And this kingdom had stood united under the leadership of three significant kings for over 100 years. The first is Saul, the second is David, the third is Solomon. And after the death of Solomon, his son Rehoboam takes over leadership of the nation and he drives a wedge between the northern part of the country and the southern part of the country and a civil war breaks out. And that's when they divide into a northern kingdom, which is commonly referred to in the book as Israel, and a southern kingdom, which is commonly referred to as Israel. Now, one of the key lessons that we need to learn from this book of Kings is there's a difference between a political view of the world and a prophetic view of the world. The political view is all the measures that you're used to hearing as you hear people evaluate the state of the union of this country or other countries around the world. It's the economic success, it's the jobs that are being created, 
the financial progress of a nation or the power that a nation has. These are all the types of things that we as human beings, we look at and we find them very, very impressive. But the prophetic view is different. And the author writing the book of Kings is much, much more concerned about the prophetic view of the world. That's why from a political standpoint, some of these kings are highly successful, but they get like this much text in the story. It's just a little paragraph. Now, how are we to understand the prophetic view as we look at this? Well, it's actually pretty clear. You see, the author tells us how God evaluates kings through two phrases. He either says that a king does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, or a king does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. It's pretty clear. You're reading about these kings, you're seeing the actions that they took, and you're not confused as you leave the story as to whether or not, in the prophetic view, they were a winner or they were a loser. Now, as we go into Elijah, he is a part of the northern kingdom, and this northern kingdom was ruled by some 19 kings. So from a 200-year span, from the time of the split of Israel to the time in 722 BC when Assyria takes the northern kingdom into exile, there are 19 kings. And here's what's remarkable about these kings. There are no outliers amongst them. All 19 of these kings, the text says, do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Their first king, Jeroboam, he set them on a path to which none of the other 18 kings would depart from. In fact, as you read the story of the northern kingdom, it's almost like they're engaged in a contest. Who can do more evil in the sight of the Lord than the one before? As we come to the story of Elijah, we're going to see that the worst of the worst is the king in this story. His name is Ahab. And Ahab gets six chapters devoted to his rule, his leadership. So we're going to take a look. I think you remember the song, These Are the Days of Elijah. Well, this story isn't These Are the Days of Elijah. This is These Are the Days of Ahab. And we'll take a look at the state of Israel under his rule. Open your Bibles. We're at chapter 16, and we pick up at verse 29. The text says that in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, many than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which is built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord. 
which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So think about this story. Remember the prophetic view and the political view. If you were living in the days of Ahab, uh, from an external standpoint, it wouldn't seem like such an evil time to you. 401ks are gaining. The economy is booming. His father, Omri, had taken Israel to the next level. They were kind of a weak player in the region, and Omri comes onto the scene. He moves the capital of Israel to Samaria, and they gain regional influence. Now, Ahab is going to take things to the next level. They're going to continue to grow. He does this through a strategic marriage to a Phoenician princess named Jezebel. Now, why is this so strategic? Well, it means now that the the goods, the Israeli goods that they are making, can go throughout all of the world through the Phoenician ports. The Phoenician seamen can take their goods and their produce out and about. Now, you could look at this situation and say, are things really that bad? I mean, the economy's booming. Things are going so well. The middle class, they got better cars, bigger houses, a better quality of life. But again, the prophetic view is not the same as the political view. God doesn't look at history and measure history the way we look at history and measure history. See, a nation can look like it's prospering materially, but spiritually that same nation can be on life support. I want you to take a look at this picture. Now, this picture is a tree uh, that came down in my good friend Aaron Tonello's lawn. Now, just imagine that you're standing in a lawn and you're looking at an oak tree, a big, strong oak tree. From the outside, as you're looking at this tree, you see a a great big tree. It looks like it's healthy, it's growing, it's doing what a tree should be doing. But all the while, there are these insidious little creatures called carpenter ants burrowing into the meat of the heartwood of the core of the tree right down at the base. So this same tree that from the untrained eye looks so strong and healthy is inwardly dying. Now you could allow that to serve as a spiritual parable. You could look at it and understand that it's so true of the spiritual life that I can't evaluate God's favor or God's or the spiritual condition of my heart by all of the externals, the things that we tend to measure our success by. I have many conversations with people and they think to themselves something along these lines. I must be doing all right with God because I am successful I'm earning a good income. I am well-known and well-regarded, and I have influence and friendships. Or maybe you look at the condition of your children, and you think to yourself, well, they're pretty successful. They're doing well in sports, and they're educated, or now they have a career, and they're doing well. Here's the thing. None of those factors are good indicators of your stance with God. It's also true of your religiosity. I talk to people, and they say, I'm a spiritual person. I think about God things, and I pray, and and I I think that I'm going to be reincarnated someday. I'm into all of that spiritual stuff. 
You could be deeply spiritual and very far from God, according to the biblical story. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Ahab and Jezebel were these like atheistic secularists that wanted nothing to do with anything spiritual? You couldn't be further from the truth if that's how you think of them. No, Jezebel is deeply spiritual, as we will see. But the point is this. Your life can look great on the outside, and it can be decaying inwardly. Materialism, wrong worship, self-determined life, pleasure-seeking, these are all like spiritual carpenter ants that are eating at the very core of your heart and your soul. But God is not content to leave you in that condition. And that's what we're going to see as we make our way through this story. If you want God in your life, if you want God in your world, you need to open yourself to him. Now that's just what Ahab's unwilling to do. He unleashes the spiritual carpenter ants on Israel, and he does this by making three destructive decisions, and we'll see these. The first is that he introduces Baal worship. Now, Baal is the god of the storm. He's the god that they would pray to in this day for rains to come after the drought season. And it was, of course, Baal in their mind who brought about the crops and the productivity and produce of the land. And they would worship him through what was called fertility rites. So if we were to translate this in modern terms of today, Baal worship is equivalent to worshiping these three Ps, productivity, prosperity, and pleasure. It's akin to trusting in your own ability to create your own wealth, stockpile resources, and living exclusively for experience and pleasure. That's the heart of it. And Ahab's the first king that's willing to introduce this next level of departure from God into the nation. He also, the text says, marries Jezebel. Now, Jezebel, she is a bad queen. And she is the primary driver of ball worship. And she's not just content to introduce ball worship among other worship in the state of Israel. No, she wants to have people worship ball and no one else. She's not a pluralist. It says in 1 Kings 18 that she's systematically killing the prophets. Now get this in the story. That's the strategy of Satan. Anything like what Jezebel's doing is Satan motivated. And Satan is more than happy to feign at the beginning that he is this pluralist. He wants to come in and yeah, you know, you, you just need to add some additional things to your Christianity. That will be fine. I'll tell you what. When Satan gets full control, he becomes a purist. He will cleanse the land of all things God, all things Christianity. We'll see one more thing here that Ahab does. It tells us that he made this destructive decision. He chose to have Jericho rebuilt, which is a complete contradiction to the word of the Lord through Joshua. In Joshua 6.26, the scriptures say, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundations. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. 
Now hear this. His actions are a complete dismissal of the word of God. It's like this story I read about recently. Um, J. Payne, or Barton Payne, J. Barton Payne in 1942 was entering into seminary on the West Coast. And he shows up to his first class. It's a study of the Old Testament. And the professor opens up the scriptures and starts talking about the scriptures. And then he says, let me tell you something about these scriptures. I want to show you something really important about them. So he has all the class march outside into the parking lot and they circle around his car. He proceeds to take his Bible and put it under the car, and then he places a car jack on top of the Bible, and he jacks the car up on top of the Bible. You know what his big point to the class was through that illustration? That this scripture, this Bible, is no better, no more truthful to you than any other book that exists out in the world right now. And that's the same point that Ahab is making in verse 34, by rebuilding Jericho. In fact, you could paraphrase that verse. These are the days of Ahab when the word of God didn't amount to a hill of beans. Now, just for a minute, imagine. Imagine living in a world like this. You love God. You want to be faithful to him. You want to do things according to God's ways. Have you ever found yourself getting discouraged, looking out at the world and saying, why is evil winning right now? I want to tell you, believer, that's a normal emotion in the life of faith. Uh, the psalmist Asaph, he, he wrote this in Psalm 73. He said, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that I was this close from throwing in the towel. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can relate to what Asaph is saying there. I, I look out and I think to myself, why does it seem like the people who do everything wrong spiritually get ahead? They don't go to church. They don't care what the Bible has to say. They don't give a second thought to God. In fact, it seems like the less scruples a person has, the more successful they are. And then in those moments, in the quietness of your heart, you might have said this to yourself before, if you're going to be honest, you might have asked yourself, am I really joined the winning team here? Is it really in my best interest to serve God, to do things God's way? You might even have prayed to God and said, what are you doing? There's all these Ahabs out here, and they're spitting on everything that is good and true and right. Well, if you've ever felt that way before, you need to hear these words from Ronald Wallace. He says that when it seems like evil is winning, God in unexpected places has already secretly prepared his countermove. You see, God always has his ways of working underground to undermine the stability of evil. God can raise men for his service from nowhere. Therefore, this situation is never hopeless or it is always a superficial flourish whenever evil flourishes. For at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there, 
ready with his man and his movement and his plans to ensure his own cause will never fail. And that's what verse 1 is in 1 Kings chapter 17. It's God initiating his counter-movement. Look at the scriptures. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now this verse is just brimming with brave faith. And we're going to see how God uses three things in this verse to demonstrate his power, his ways in the midst of this culture, this world that has been changing around the people of God. The first thing I want you to look at in Elijah is his name. Now the name Elijah, again, is a brave faith kind of name. You know what it means? Elijah means Yahweh is my God. Now imagine living under the rule of bloodthirsty Jezebel for the prophets and you come forward and you say, my name is Elijah. You know what he's saying by his name? I worship one God. I believe that he is the living God, the real God, the only God. And my life is oriented in such a way that I live for an audience of one. Now, what does it mean to live for an audience of one? Os Guinness wrote this. Most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. You're living for an audience whether it's the audience of your work, the audience of your family, the audience of your neighbors, maybe it's even the audience of whatever you've built in your mind about what you should be like and your life should be like. Guinness continues, the question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we have. And he says, a life lived listening to the decisive call of God is a life lived before one audience that trumps all others, the audience of one. He goes on to say this, that is why Christ-centered heroism does not need to be noticed or publicized. The greatest deeds are done before the audience of one, and that is enough. Those who are seen and sung by the audience of one can afford to be careless about lesser audiences. Here's the thing about Elijah. His message is not going to be popular. In fact, as he stands up to speak, his message will endanger his life, but he's not living for the other audiences. His name is not Jezebel is my queen or Ahab is my king. His name is Yahweh is my God. Let me tell you this, believer. When you're convinced that there is no one else in the universe that you need to please other than God, you're really starting to get it. And that will embolden you to do just what you need to do in this world for his plans and his purposes. Notice something else, too, about Elijah. As you look at the text, we notice his homeland. It says, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. You know what that means? You know what the Bible's trying to tell us here? 
The Bible is saying this podunk nobody from nowhere is coming and he's just saying this to Ahab. It's like he's crashing onto the scene like a meteorite, right? It's a flash in the pan. Who is this guy? Why is he wearing those smelly clothes? He's really hairy. And he's telling me what I'm supposed to do as king. What I love about the Bible's portrayal of of the so-called heroes of the Bible is more often than not, these heroes are nobodies from nowhere. Now, we're the ones who make them into figures of prominence. We, We give them these platforms that are elevated. And I have to say this, the only one who can rightfully occupy that platform is Jesus. They're not a super class. In fact, James says in James 5.17, in case you missed the point, he says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That's who he was. He didn't lead God's people through his sophistication or his articulation of words or his ability to influence people or to get things done. No, you know how Elijah operated? God gave him a message and he courageously obeyed it. He went and said, said to them, the living God says no rain until I say so. Now let's think now about his message. Why talk about a drought? Why say the living God? Well, he's determined to attack Baalism and its theological center. Remember what we've already established. So Baal is the storm god. He has led, or his worshipers have led people to believe that Baal is the one who brings productivity, prosperity, and pleasure into their worlds. So here, Elijah is going to drive a nail into the coffin of Baal. He's going to say this, God is the one who determines whether or not the rain falls. Because he's the living God, which by implication means Baal is the dead God, the non-existent God. Now, do you think that God versus Baal, that, that whole saga begins at Mount Carmel? No. As we're going to see in a couple of weeks, that's the knockout punch. But right here, Elijah's drawing a line in the sand and he's saying, put your hope in the living God. Don't worship this ball who can do nothing for you. I'm God's representative. I'm the one who says when the rain comes back, if you want it to rain on the land, you have to come and find me and I will operate on his behalf. Now, what I love about this conflict between God and Baal is it exposes what is broken and corrupt at the very center of ourselves. You see, through this story of Elijah, God is revealing what those spiritual carpenter ants are gnawing away at. They're gnawing away at the core of you, the center of you, the place where God wants to inhabit and dwell and occupy the center. He wants to be God of your life. 
He doesn't want to go into a, a, a center of you that is riddled with all of these other influences and idols. He wants to be your God. He wants your name to be Elijah. Yahweh is my God. And he says throughout the scriptures, I'm unwilling to share that space with anyone else. As you look at Isaiah 42.8, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Now you have to ask yourself the question, why is God unwilling to share his glory with another? Is it because God's kind of selfish and, and he's unwilling to play nice in the sandbox with others? It has nothing to do with that. You see, the first reason he's unwilling to share his glory with another, the biggest reason is because if he were to do so, it would be a lie. And he's not a God of lies. He's a God of truth. Listen to me. There is nothing or no one who can stand taller than God. Nothing or no one that can stand side by side with God. There's nothing or no one that can even stand a little beneath God. He's infinitely bigger than all of it. He says in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. And by inviting you to worship him in his glory, he is generously welcoming you into reality as it is. When we refuse to do that, Scriptures tells us the heart of our problem with sin is that we're just being ungrateful to him. And think about God. Think about your life. If you've been operating in your life without God at the core, you've essentially been saying all of your life, I don't need him. Even though all of the special arrangements that led for, to the, the fact that you are you today. Maybe you feel like you're a self-made person. I've worked really hard. I've grinded it out. I've made me the person I am. Well, think about this. Who put you in the place and location and time and all of those factors that there's no way you can control to be able to do those things? Not you. God. In Romans 1.21, Paul says that the core of our sin is that for although we know God, we do not honor him as God or give him thanks. Listen, do you think that, that, that God's biggest issue with sin is the fact that you swear or that, that you've uh, thought impure thoughts towards someone that's not your spouse or, or that you have hatred in your heart or you've been unwilling to forgive a person? Here's the thing. The those are problems. They're sinful problems in your life. But it's not the core problem. You know what the core problem is? The core problem is your name. You've been living your life with this name. My God is Rob. My God is Sue. My God is Jim. Or whatever your name is. 
Your core problem is that you have wanted to be the lowercase g God of your life, of your own little world. But God wants to change your name. He wants to change your name to Elijah. Yahweh is my God. You see, God desperately longs to change your name and rewrite your story. He wants to take all of that damaged sinfulness, all of that stuff that is not right about the core of who you are, and he wants to make you into a new you, a better you, a Christ-like you. You see, God always has spiritual transformation on his mind and his heart for your life. So yes, God is a judge. He is a judge who can take away the rain. But we also see in the scriptures that he's a savior who comes along and removes the rot and replaces that with the Holy Spirit and his indwelling presence when we come to him by faith in Christ. John Wesley understood the heart of God. In his ministry, he was operating in ministry in Newcastle, England, and he wrote in his journal of observing the evil and the wickedness in this region, and he said, never in my life have I heard such language, such swearing, such wickedness. And then he concludes that, that, that rant about all the things he's seeing with this hope-filled sentence. He says, ripe for revival. Believer, I hope you take on that same heart this missional may, that the world may have changed around us, but guess what? That only means that it is now ripe for revival. Well, maybe you're sitting out there today and you're hearing me speak and you're thinking to yourself, I feel so distant from God, so impure before God. I was afraid that when I walked in the church this morning that the walls were going to cave down around me. Friend, if that's your heart toward God right now, you too are ripe for revival. I remember I was having a spiritual conversation with a gentleman and we were talking about all different sorts of aspects of the life of faith. He had apologetic questions, Bible questions, questions about who Jesus was. But really when we got down to it, he said, I feel so impure before him. I have not lived by the Bible standards. I have not lived by God's standards. There's something wrong with me that means I can't connect with God. And I looked right at him in that moment and I said, friend, you are so close to the kingdom of God right now. That's the first step. It's called repentance. Repentance is this idea where I know how much I've done and how little I deserve anything from God. It's where you say to yourself, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm a disaster. I'm a moral failure. I can't save myself. That is the first step. And let me just say this. You don't want to get stuck in the first step. Because if you're stuck in the first step, then you're just kind of dwelling on your wickedness and you're saying, I can never be right with God. I guess I just have to accept that. You know what that does to you? That gets you spiritually stuck. You have to move beyond understanding how little you deserve to knowing and believing how much you can receive 
In John 3.16, the scriptures explain the next step. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God sent his son into the world to redeem your core, your heart. Well, how do I take a step with Jesus? Scripture says that you believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he's risen from the dead. And when you take that step of faith with him, the Bible says he will change you from the inside out. That's the kind of change we all need. That's the kind of change your heart most longs for. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever given Jesus permission to change your core? Have you opened your heart to him? Maybe today's that day. Maybe today's the day where you change your name to Elijah. And you say, Yahweh is my God. I will follow him. Can I ask you to bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. Get silent before the Lord. We're going to talk about this a little more as we move through this series, but above everything right now, God needs your attention. He needs your attention. He has so little of our attention right now. We're distracted. We have so many things moving through our mind and our hearts that we keep boxing them out. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, now's the time to give God your attention. If you would like to change your name this morning, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment as best as I know how. I turn my life over to your care and your control. Amen. Well, God bless you if you changed your name this morning, if you've put your faith in Christ. The last thing I want to leave you with, though, is your step after that is to tell someone you know that you've put your faith in Christ. The Christian life is not a solo journey. We need a church family. We need a faith community. And there are people here who want to walk with you. So whether you're in the multi-purpose room or here in the sanctuary or online, make sure you reach out and we will be here to walk with you. God bless you.